Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Damian Lupo. Damian, welcome to the show. Henry, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. Uh, Damian is a serial entrepreneur, definitely a serial entrepreneur. Over the past 25 years, uh, he's started and owned more than 30 different companies, including an insurance agency, a precious metals firm, a venture capital company, a financial consulting firm, and more than a dozen real estate investment and development companies. He's also the founder of Yokido, his own martial art, and he holds three other black belts. So very interesting part of his life. Uh, Damien is a five-time author, and he's sought after, a sought after rather financial consultant for accredited investors and business owners, especially small business owners like us. Uh, Using a vast knowledge of financial markets, money philosophy, and pattern recognition, he's an expert at quickly diagnosing hidden financial cancers, as he calls them, and with clients and their organizations and rewriting both of them to achieve success. We'll chat about that as well. Uh, Damien's personal philosophy centers on self-responsibility and a conviction that the only path to freedom is through candor, growth, and a big vision. That big vision ideal is what drove him to found Total Control Financial in 2016 and design everything around 10x growth and 10x impact for the clients and the teams and the shareholders that he works with. So we're going to chat with Damien about his entrepreneurial journey, how he got to where he is today. It's a very interesting background. And then we're going to get valuable tips and advice for us as small business owners in the area of financial and business management. He lives in Austin, Texas. And so once again, Damien Lupo, welcome to the show. Henry, I am excited to be here. Good, glad. Uh, I'm in the Dallas area, so we're not too far from each other and love visiting Austin on a regular basis, although it's growing so fast. I just saw a list that it's uh, one of the top three growing cities in the country. I don't know if that was right, but I'm sure it's somewhat close. Yeah, it's it's boomtown here. And people that have lived here even 10 or 15 years look at it and say, wow, it just it doesn't resemble what it used to be. It's it's changing rapidly. Yeah. So we're 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 in a hotbed. I know it. I know it. the traffic is just insufferable sometimes. But it's still a great part, a good place to be, great place to be, and so a lot of going on there. So let's start with your entrepreneur journey if we could. I think you mentioned in something I was reading that you started your first business at age eleven. Yeah, Henry. I, I, back when I was 11, it was it was kind of a, a funny thing. Sometimes things happen because of proximity, we're close to them, or just at, out of a need, out of a pain point. And when I was back as a kid growing up in Alaska, I remember hearing over and over from my parents, especially my dad, that there just wasn't enough. It was kind of a middle-class lifestyle or middle-class financial environment. And it, the message was scarcity. We don't have enough. There's no, basically no, 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 no. And I just I didn't buy into that that was really the answer. So I said, I want to play video games. I want to have money. I want to be able to make choices. So I started, I, I was out there wanting to play video games and thought there maybe there's a business around this and started buying and selling games and buying them in bulk, selling them off after I'd played them. And that became really the first business that I had. And it was sort of an accident, but it was solving a problem because I believe there was a better answer to a question of, of how do I get access to money since the answer was no from my parents. I, I basically had to create it. So it's kind of the entrepreneurial journey. We're finding a problem, we're solving it, and that solution ends up being the business. Yeah, it's fantastic. I didn't, I didn't not, had not caught that you grew up in Alaska. Where in Alaska? I grew up just outside of Anchorage, so it was kind of the civilization part of Alaska with a few more people than moose. <laughs> but barely, though. Barely, barely. Depends I mean, on what, I what time it, of the year, I suppose. Absolutely. <laughs> so that that I'm sure that ties into this whole thing of scarcity. 
because that's a part of the world where things are scarce. Resources are scarce. You have to survive on, you know, a lot less than in other environments. Uh, I might be exaggerating, right? I'm not making it sound like you were living in an igloo, but I think you know what I mean. That has to have influenced then just all around your family, your upbringing. And it seems like you were not comfortable from that from a very early age. No, it, 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 that's true. I, I really, I, I rejected at a, at a, almost a spiritual level that there was a fixed amount of anything. And, and over the years, I, I kept bumping out of the, the conventional wisdom, like going to college. And, and I went, I went four times and I kept dropping out because it didn't vibrate because it was really about a fixed path, a, a safe, secure quote unquote path that worked for a different generation that would say, get good grades, go to school with those, get, get a good job, retire and everything is good and and I just went yeah this doesn't really work there's it, it's all about creating it's about dreaming things up and and I went off into the the woods and figured that out by by just kind of making my own path over the years so it was really more about saying I reject these fixed guidelines for how it's supposed to be or it has to be I'm going to make it up based on what I can dream up yeah to think you were also very frustrated in school but but were you a good student or yeah, that's it's funny because I was based on that game. I, I was really good at memorizing things, and I I gamed the system in a lot of ways. So it was almost an unfair advantage because I got accolades, and yet it really didn't take me anywhere because I would memorize something and then regurgitate it, and then the next day I didn't remember much. Yeah. And so that and that's really the system. And if we stay in that system, we're in deep trouble because the the world is changing. You've got to solve problems. Google has all the answers if you're just about memorizing. You don't, that's, that's basically useless at this point. Yeah, agreed, couldn't agree more. And then you took, as you alluded to, a somewhat unconventional route to schooling. You went to the Thunderbird School of Global Management. I've known a couple of other folks have gone through that schooling. So tell me about that and how you ended up there and how that's different from a typical university environment. Well, so when I, when I had my insurance agency back uh, in, like when I was around 20 years old, I, I thought I wanted, I still am interested in, in academic uh, understanding of, of business because at that point I hadn't, I'd gone to school for a year with engineering and then I had the insurance agency and really didn't know anything about business and Thunderbird had this amazing reputation. So the cool part about Thunderbird is it, it was all about case studies. We actually looked at businesses like Dell or Southwest Airlines or Johnson Sausage. We were studying real world stuff and Harvard does it. A lot of places do it. That's what really matters when you're looking at reality. It's not just some quant study or some academic theory about you know, economics. It's real world, what really happens. And and so going into that program for a year gave me a lot of insights into things that I was completely clueless about. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, it's a virtual or an online program that you took part in, or did you physically go somewhere for that? No, I actually Thunderbird was a live program. I did the University of Phoenix thing, which, in, when I look back at it, it was a lot of money for very little value. Mm. Thunderbird in real world, we we were sitting there with people talking, and these were people that were in business. They were out in the world doing things, so it wasn't just students. And we could talk about practical applications of what we were learning based on the case studies. So that was a very cool thing to be in the same environment. But you started your insurance agency without finishing college, and so tell me about that. What led to starting that business? I, I was working in banking at the time. I was I was selling credit cards in a grocery store, and I got recruited by by farmers. And it was it seemed like the the perfect opportunity. I was young, hungry, ambitious, and I was able to sell things. And when I look back, I sort of laugh because being that young, I'm talking to people about money and finances. I don't know why anybody believed me about anything because <laughs> I mean I was I was wet behind the ears and. And it's it was just a, it was a place where I could show up with enthusiasm, and and people people basically said yeah I want to you know I'm I'm going to buy into this even though I barely knew what I was talking about so it it gave me a chance to to sell and and to learn somewhat about business in the in a bigger space than just selling Nintendo games. Thinking back to then, what were some of the key things you learned early on about sales, especially this type of sales? One of the things that I learned from the guy that I that brought me in by the name of Rich Winters out there in Arizona was that it's about numbers. It's about talking to people. It's about touch points and contacts. And you can be the smartest person. You can be the most charismatic. If you're not talking to people, you're dead. And so he would say, get on the phone. Your job is to be on the phone and have people talking to people. Have your have your your uh, salespeople in here talking to people. And if you do that three hours a day, every day, 
you're going to end up with an outcome. Those drivers will create the key performance indicators of sales and income. If you don't have the driver of the calls, you're dead. And so a lot of people want to skip to the outcomes and they don't understand that the drivers are what gets you there. And if you just hammer on those repeatedly, rhythmically, you're going to end up with an outcome and then you can start adjusting your, your technique so that you have better conversions, but you got to have the, in, the drivers, the inputs. Yeah. All right. All right. So walk me through how you did so much early on, but if you could just take me quickly chronologically through, was the insurance agency your first entrepreneurial venture per se? And, and then where did you go from there? Yeah, the, the the insurance was almost the first one. Right before that, I was I was in school during one of the college uh, adventures where I went to school in New Mexico and I, I pulled a Michael Dell in a way. I decided to start a business in my dorm room, and I was frustrated because the bookstore on campus was screwing everybody. At least I thought they were with their used price used book thing, where they would buy it for fifty percent, sell it for seventy five, and I thought there's a there's an opportunity here. So I squeezed that to smaller margins where I gave people more money and and I bought for higher prices. Ultimately, I got called into the dean's office and he said, <laughs> either shut it down or we're kicking you out because you're putting the bookstore out of business. And I said, no, I'm not shutting down. I finished up the, the transfer of running people's books around campus and paid for my tuition in three days. And then I left because that was really me showing up in, in truth that I was an entrepreneur. I was not, I, I was not a mathematician. That was not my thing. So that was the first entrepreneurial pop right before the insurance agency and and then I got into the insurance and the funny part about insurance Henry was that I remember modeling the most successful guy in Arizona that was making a million bucks a year and I looked at him and in my brilliance at 19 or 20 years old I thought this guy isn't making real money. I need to find something that's real money. And when I saw real estate, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I went, ah, oh, that's real money. So I bailed on insurance because a million a year was, was too small for me, nice. which is kind of funny, right? Yeah, well, that's, and you had big dreams. So, so you just uh, did you sell the agency? Did you just walk away from it? What did you do there? I, I did. I sold it and, and just they basically said, if you want to do real estate, that's cool. You can't have your agency at the same time. So I said, fine. Sold it to another agent in town in, in Phoenix and focused all my efforts on the real estate and got started New Year's Eve, 1999. Yeah. So the allure of real estate is, is real estate investment still part of your overall portfolio? It's part of my thinking. It's not part of my portfolio right now because there's this this very focused obsession with the, the company with Total Control Financial, building that up and putting all my eggs in one basket to drive that thing. And ultimately, I'm I'm patiently watching the markets because the way I look at it, we're in a very frothy space, for, yeah. especially in Austin and a lot of places. And I made the mistake before of being too anxious to enter. And there's a lot of crazy money that's buying a lot of dumb deals right now. So I'm happy to wait. And I know that the the shift, the, the correction is coming. It's math. It has to. And so I'm, I'm good to wait for that. So that, that will be a huge part of the future for me in the next few years. Yeah, no doubt. I agree with you there. Okay, so you get into real estate and then where'd you go with that? So that was it. That was the uh, the the crazy boom times of 2000, where I went out and, and started buying houses using creative methods because I really didn't have any money. I had a little bit of credit on my Visa card. Bought that first house with a cash advance on my Visa, and and then started doing the same thing over and over, buying rental houses and fixing them up and and push that really really hard. So over the first 18 months, I ended up with 50, 60 houses. So it was really really fast growth. And over a five-year period, ended up with 150 houses. So I was pretty much the smartest guy I knew. I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, and I could not be told that I couldn't be told anything at that point. My ego was driving that show. Yeah, and then, as I understood it from doing the research, that ego blew out of proportion and, and led to a major trigger event. I think is what you call it. Share that with us, if you would. Yeah. So it, I was after. After I had built this thing up, the meltdown happened and I had a lot of projects because I was smart enough in 2005 to exit a lot of the houses. Like most of them I sold off, so I had lots of money. The problem is I thought it was all me, so I went back into the market, invested, leveraged up, and when I leveraged up and the, and the meltdown happened, the real estate went away. The, the things went back to the bank and I got wiped. And so I went into a really dark space based on the fact that I was my self-worth was totally equivalent to my net worth. And my net worth went from five plus million to about negative five million. So I was essentially worthless, feeling like there was no real purpose for me to be in existence. And in that dark space, I essentially went off the grid, was hiding from the world, hiding from everybody. And one day I had a knock at the door and I went up and looked at the peep peephole, looked through it, and I saw these four people with 
pistols on their side and badges on, and I thought they'd come to get me. <laughs> not like, good. Not good. Not good. This is, and I didn't know who they were. I just knew that they were they were armed and dangerous and ready to go, and they were probably there to take me away to some hole. And I just, I I panicked, hid in the closet for a couple of hours, and finally made my way outside, walked up and to see who, if they were still there. And when I when I I got to the door, I saw an envelope on the door, and I thought, okay, I think I've just been served by somebody or something. And I opened the envelope, and it said. Well, it was from the IRS, first thing I see. And then it says, Dear Miss Dorman. And it was for the lady that had been in the house before me. So it wasn't even for me. But the part that I realized a little while later is that it really was for me. It was the universe tapping me saying, you need to get you right. Because at that moment, I dropped, I really dropped my knees and I started crying because I realized I was in such a place of fear and I was so lost. I had to fix me before I went out there and did anything else. Yeah. And, and so much of it, it seems, was tied to just this, the fear of the embarrassment of having to maybe, you know, face your friends and peers with whom for you, your ego had developed yourself as, look at me, I'm this huge success, look how much money I have. And all of a sudden that was gone, right? Yeah, that, Henry, the, the, the thing is, I was really, really successful and I was, I was looked at like, like Wonder Boy or something when I'm in my 20s and I'm making all this money and I've got the Ferrari and I'm making investors lots of money and everything is good so long as everything is working. And when things didn't work, I had to go back and say it didn't work and, and then there was a lot of blame. And in the blame, instead of taking responsibility, the feedback I got from people was, you're the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And people that I'd known for 30 years that told me that they wished and hoped that I would burn in hell and that they hated me with everything that they were, it was the most painful experience I've ever had screwing up and not knowing how to fix it. And the problem is I couldn't fix it. I needed to fix me. But, and that was it was it was like a coming to Jesus moment. It was brutal. Yeah. And so that's, as you alluded to, this whole reinvented life. You put a whole program around that. Talk to us about that. Yeah, the, the reinvented life was was what I it was a process I went through from 2008 it really started in 2010 when I got very clear that I needed to fix me. And I, I started drilling into all of the the, the patterns and, and who I was. I, I wrote this book with a very, very dear friend of mine, uh, Chris Ashby, where we, we actually co-wrote the book together real time about our, our reinventions, our shifts from a previous life to a new life. And and we, we thought, okay, we've got stories that we can share. And in, in those stories, there are lessons. And so we, we gave everything that we had. It was a super candid, cathartic process of of taking that experience and giving people a roadmap so that if they said, I'm here and I want to be there, how do I get from here to there? And and I need to change me inside. So the book is broken into two parts. One, the first part is the internal reinvention, which leads to the external. It's not just about going and maybe having more money or having a new job. It's about shifting who we are internally and how we, how we approach life, the lens we see it. And I realized that I had gone through a reinvention when I look back at the me of 2005 and realize I don't recognize him in the guy that I am today and I really wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. So that was me knowing that something had truly shifted. Yeah. So how do you see this guy that you are today? How would you describe him? The guy today is, lives a life based on core values that drive everything. It's it's a very transparent experience. So what what you see is what you get. There's there's no man behind the curtain that's actually who I am. It's you know I, I show up. I I am totally authentic with people, and and I don't I don't have an ulterior ulterior agenda with with people anymore. And before it was all about more. So today it's it's about more impact. It's not about more stuff. It was really about that. Today, I'm a, I, I focus on, on teaching and, and impacting people in different things. The company is all about empowering people in a large way. It's not just about creating a billion-dollar company. It's about impacting a million people, and that's the driver. Before, I was focusing on the outcomes. Now, I'm focusing on the, the inputs, and the input is the contribution to each of the, the client, each of the customer, and seeing them successful. And, and that really just, there's a side effect to the outcome. And so I'm, I'm obsessed about lifting people up and empowering them, getting them off the roller coaster that they're on financially. Yeah, it's fantastic. Def definitely a different person that you've become. But I wonder, you know, we, we all still nonetheless struggle with that allure of material things, of the rewards of 
building something that's quote unquote successful. So I wonder how you balance that now. And if, if there are times when you feel like you still have that temptation, oh, wow, look how much money you have in the bank account. I mean, those things do have some importance. We can't deny that. So how do you balance that now in life? It's a great question, Henry. I, we, there, I still look at things and I'm, I'm still a squirrel hunter. I mean, I look at shiny objects and I go chasing after them and I'm, I'm not any different than anybody else that, that has that. The, the, the difference that I've, the different thing that I, the different approach that I have now is, is more about experiencing the thing instead of having to own the thing. And an example of that is before I wanted to own all these houses and all these cars and I bought my Ferrari and, and I, what I really wanted was the experience. And so today, if I, if I look at something, for example, a couple of years ago, I was interested in the new Corvette Stingray. I'm not really a car guy, but it seemed very cool. So instead of going out there, spending a bunch of time developing something or building something or making money to go buy the car, I went out and rented the car for three days. And at the end of the three days, I was done with the car. I, I completed the experience and and then I was I was done. So I, it wasn't gnawing at me. It wasn't something I spent 20 years fixating on and then I get to do it and I go, wow, that's it. So really trying before we go all in on owning something. I, I love the objects and some of them I actually want to own. I think a lot of the things that we're looking for, we're really looking for the experience of it. And there's ways to have the experience without these objects owning us. Yeah. Yeah, such a great example, but I think that's such a great test of where you are today that in the past, I know I was there too, I would have needed that Corvette on a continuous basis and wanted people to see me in that car because I felt, well, that's how they're going to judge me and I want them to think highly of me because of this material thing that I have. But that you now have come to a point where that's not what you're looking for. It's the experience, the enjoyment of it, the, 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 the enjoyment of this machine that you got to drive and the power that it has, but it had very little to do with how it represented you and who you were as a person. That, that, that's right. And, and now what I get real juice out of is one of the, core, the six values that, we, that I live by and, and the company that was built on with being relationship. I love the, the experience of being in relationship. Like this morning, I had somebody on LinkedIn reach out to me and said, hey, I heard you on a show and I'm, I'm really interested in some of the stuff you talked about and I would love to meet you. I'm in your town. So I met this guy. We had coffee and it was awesome. It was so much fun. To me, that was way better than the, the year and a half that I had a Ferrari. That one cup of coffee, that one conversation meant more to me and was more fulfilling than the the shadow or the service level success that might be seen from driving a Ferrari around. It's yeah. just, it's, it's a different experience. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. And it, the car thing is such a great analogy because no matter how shiny and exciting that new car is, you drive it down the road and then somebody passes you in a better, shinier, newer, nicer car, right? So Every time. It, it, you never can get there. It's just this this vicious cycle that you allow yourselves to fall into if you don't check yourself. Yep, it is it is a cycle. That that cycle there's there's a cycle, there's a process of mastery that you can never get to. It's a that and that's a very healthy lifelong obsession mm -hmm. towards building into mastery. There the other side of that is what you just described, where you're always looking for something bigger because the bigger thing has just passed you and then you'd never end. And it's it's just it's very defeating. So how does this development of Yokido, this martial art that you developed, come into play here? I got to think there's lots of things coming at it. There's your this thing you've had since early on where you just want to reinvent things and you're not happy with the way things are. There's this passion that you have. There's It represents you to an extent. So tell me about how this came to be. Well, it, it, Yokido was, was, was dreamt up after I'd been studying Aikido for about about 10 years. And then I, I found out about yoga. So I was kind of a late to the start with yoga. Although when I started it, it really resonated with me because it gave me a space to really deeply meditate and get present. And with Aikido, it's all about presence that any martial art, the more present you are, the more powerful you are. If you're not present, you're about to get hit in the face. So I, I started studying yoga and realized that there was a great there was there was synergy between the two. There was there was symmetry, and, and I could overlap them. And I also realized that there were a lot of women that were studying yoga that could really use what is Aikido, the the art of peace. They could use that in their lives by taking some of the conflict out. So I meshed these two together, and then brought in a little bit of Reiki. And for those who don't know what Reiki is, it's healing hands. It's about healing people through touch. And 
the, the three of these fused together creates a space where from a core power and a breath perspective, you're able to move through life, whether it's with somebody or maybe on a phone call, you're moving through life without conflict, you're blending. And in the process of blending around any type of threat or conflict, you're also healing any negative energy that's there. So it, it might be somebody that's attacking you even in, a, in an office environment or on the street. And in the course of blending around that, so you're not going into the conflict, you're, you're also helping to heal that. So it's not just you being a, a pacifist around it. It's, it's around engaging with intention to heal whatever is out there that's damaged. And so that was really the essence of what I wanted to create. Yeah. yeah. How often are you practicing it now? I, I train typically three times a week, and that's it, that's that's a it, what's what's cool is that I train on the mat, and then I bring that out into the world. So the training I do there, the the thing I everything I learned from my students and being there, I'm able to apply, and that's kind of how Sean Korn talks about this. The the great yoga instructor and thought leader, she talks about her her process of being taking what you learn on the mat and bringing it into the world. And that's really what happens with martial arts. You take that and you bring it to the world, and then it's it's this constant feedback loop. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, so that brings us to you, one of your latest ventures, which is Total Control Financial. Tell us what that is and what you do with that. So Total Control Financial is is a company that we founded, a partner and I founded in early 2016. And the intention behind it, the mission, is to disrupt Wall Street and empower Main Street. And basically what we're doing with that is taking people, giving them a tool, a vehicle to exit the Wall Street roller coaster, take their money out of Wall Street jail and put it in their hands so that their their retirement money, and we'll talk about retirement because I hate that word, is they're, they're taking that, that future wealth that they need and they're taking it away from the Wall Street machine and they're, they're able to hold it and control it and design a plan instead of having a default uh, experience that may or may not actually involve wealth. Okay. And so you talk about one of the tools specifically is this thing called an EQRP. Can you define that right quick? Yeah. An EQRP is an empowered retire qualified retirement plan. And what that essentially is, is a checkbook that holds your, your retirement money, your 401k money. And you get to use that checkbook to invest in basically a whole world of investments that you're, you're not allowed to touch. If you're working with the typical wall street machine with the mutual funds, you get, you can invest in real estate and private companies, precious metals, a whole bunch of different things you choose based on what works for you and who you are. So is this a self-directed IRA? No, it's not. In fact, I hate self-directed IRAs, and I'll tell you why. Because they're very limited in what you can do, and you've got a custodian that's telling you yes or no that's going to charge you fees for everything you're doing. And there's there's huge limits around real estate with self-directed IRAs, including something if, – if you want to buy real estate and use debt, you can actually get hammered and have to pay tax inside a self-directed IRA. This is a self-directed plan. It's, it's a self-directed 401k plan that we've designed that gives you the ability to invest in real estate with debt without tax, buying precious metals that you can hold at home. It's a totally different tool. It's 10 times better than a self-directed IRA. If it's A versus B, there's no comparison. This this destroys that idea. Yeah. And how, how long have you been at this now? You say you started um, Total Control Financial. When was that? When did you start it? Started the company at the beginning of the year and okay. have been involved with, with these, these type of plans and things for the last five years. Wrote the book on this. Um, in 2012, so it's been about five, almost five years since the book came out on on this and 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 um, what we're basing the company on right now. Yeah, and it's this whole thing, as you touched on, about empowering others. What do you think has brought you to that point in life where that's a focus and and what drives you now? A couple of things. There, I had a conversation with with my dad a, a couple of years, actually three years ago. It was a couple of months before he died, and we were sitting down, and and he he said two things that I will never forget. One, he looked at me and he shook his head, and he just said there was just so many things that I wanted to do, and it and and what I saw there, what I felt was regret. I felt the somebody that had just they hadn't truly lived everything that they wanted to, and it was there was a lot of fear and decisions that led to that point instead of living fully. And so that that anchored into me. So it, it was a driver. And the other thing that just killed me, and it actually it ended up killing him, was this fear of running out of money. And because he wanted to, he wanted to be able to leave something to his kids, and he didn't want to become a burden. He saw his limited resources that he had spent a lifetime building up, and he went, 
I'm going to run out of these things. I don't have enough money or wealth to take care of me. And so I guess I have a choice. The choice is run out of resources, become a burden and, and push and, and keep living or I can die and there'll be something left. And a couple months later, he was dead because of that consciousness and that decision. And that breaks my heart. Oh, it's terribly sad. It makes me emotional just thinking about it. Right. And so many people find themselves in that position. And, and then to your point, we, we're seeing it. We see people heading down the very same path. Yes. Anyway, um, so to get a little bit more positive here, maybe is this term retirement, which you hate so much and I hate as well. Why, why do you hate it? I hate it because the idea of retirement means you're done. It means you're done contributing. It means you're done. If you are truly retired, the idea of retirement is I'm going to work this period of time and then I'm done. And Mike, there's a reason that three years after the average American male retires, he's dead yeah. because he he doesn't have any purpose and we need purpose. We need to have something. And the crazy part about retiring or stopping contributing is that you have decades of wisdom and experiences that you can now do something with and to say, I'm just going to go golfing or just going to travel and that's it. It's really limiting your your ability to contribute. And my belief is that when you say you're done, the universe is done with you. If you're not contributing actively, the universe is going to say you're taking up space and it's going to basically be done with you. So why would we want to retire? And really it's because most people when they say that are not in love with their life. If you're in love with your life, I'm not going to retire. I, I could do what I'm doing now the rest of my life because I love it. And if you love your life, the idea of retirement seems like a crazy person idea. So it's really a question of what do you love? And if you don't love what you're doing, it's probably a good question. What should I be doing? Maybe I, I should start reinventing my life because really you get one shot. You have one. It's not a warm up. This is the main event. So let's eat. it's time to do something you enjoy and live all the way through. You don't want to get to the end and say, well, I, man, there were just so many things I wanted to do. You don't want to you don't want to say what my dad said. You you want to say I let I didn't leave anything out there. I, I mean, I was done. I mean, I, I gave everything. I did everything. And 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 you're and it's like a spectacular moment. The last breath you have, you say, wow, that was spectacular. Yeah, I love that. Couldn't agree with you more. The way I look at it is I want to be able to go on creating for as long as I can create. You know, the thing that'll stop me is if I start to lose my mind and and that's a possibility and then I can't create anymore. But I want to keep creating in some form or fashion until I mentally cannot anymore. That's right. Absolutely. So self-responsibility, I touched on that in reading your bio. What does that mean to you? Explain that to me if you would. Yeah, self-responsibility is about ownership of absolutely everything. It's about control, and it's 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 controlling how we look at things. There's there's a difference, and we see this everywhere. We saw this in the recent election. So many people were playing victim to what these presidential candidates were going to do to them or do in general, and they were they were blaming something else. They were giving away responsibility for their lives and saying, if this person gets elected, this is the impact on me, and this is how my life's going to turn out. And I I just reject that idea. If we're responsible for our lives, if we're responsible for how they're going to be, then nobody can take anything away. But we've got to get rid of the blame and the justifying and, and the lack of responsibility. Once we do that, even if we can't control it, because clearly we can't control a, a terrorist event, we can control how we respond to it. And the moment we take 100% responsibility for everything in our life, especially the money piece – owning that and saying whatever my money looks like or the lack of money, I did that. It's my choices. Once you take responsibility, you can do something about it. If you don't take responsibility, you have no control and you're just a victim. And why would anybody want to be a victim? Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more, Damien. This whole this whole concept of, re concept of responsibility, accountability, to me, I see it as probably the number one reason why people will talk a lot about doing something for themselves, whether it's financially, whether it's starting a business, and what separates them from the people who actually do. You have to make that shift into knowing that it's on me. And there's two sides to it, right? I know that I can do it, and it's me that has the ability or, or is responsible if I fail, right? I have to take accountability for that and move on. And so few people I find are willing to do that. 
No, that that's that's right. There's there's this fear that if 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 we own our lives completely and if we say we say it's all me, then guess what? There's going to be a mistake, and then we have to look stupid or we have to look mm. wrong or something, and and we're going to be judged, and that it hurts because we're so in, there's this ingrained idea that mistakes are wrong or they're bad or you're you're a failure if you make a mistake. That's, so, so you do uh, see those things, things as intertwined, that, that that's why we, we are afraid to take on a responsibility because that means then it's on us. We can't push it on anybody else. And if we fail, then we're embarrassed by that failure. We, we are. And we're, what, what are we taught as, as kids in school? We're taught that making no mistakes, being an A student like, like I was, that that is the right path. To me, that's the absolute wrong path. If you're getting all A's, it means you're probably not learning nearly what you could be and you're not growing that much. Well said. Yeah. Huge topic. I couldn't agree with you more. All right, let's shift a little bit more from a business perspective. You've started several companies. I'm curious, one of the things that's always a challenge for a small business owner is where do I get the money to start a business? So tell me about that, how you've gone about funding all these different ventures. I'm sure you've done it different ways each time, but especially early on, how you came up with the money. Well, early, early on, I remember I had I had my visa card, and so my visa and I were were friends. My, my visa funded my first house; it, it kept me going. And at times, I used that. I, I mean, at one point, I had over a million dollars on credit cards that I that I had built up. So I used that because it was it, it's part of our society, and it can be used or abused. But that was definitely something that I used. If you're all in, you you use whatever resources there, and, and that happens to be easy. The I've used loans, personal loans, bank loans. A lot of it was really the hustle, though, and that was that was the that that's what I used because there's when you don't have any money, you've got to work harder, you've got to think bigger, you've got to get people to buy in to a vision because you can work by yourself, which is sweat equity, or you can work with vision equity, and that's where people join forces and they're willing to participate. Sometimes it's with their money, sometimes it's with their time, but really, what you're getting for for with your money is you're getting other people's time. So the vision it's what is what gives you a ton of leverage in terms of having the universe align and conspire with you. And that's where people shortchange themselves. They have their vision isn't big enough. And I, I believe that that's one of the most powerful things that we can do and change any day, today, whatever this moment is have a bigger vision and 10x everything. Yeah, I yeah, know. Very good. And so talking about successful strategies that you applied from a financial perspective to manage your businesses, obviously, if we look back, for example, to the real estate ventures, I was in that game as well. To an extent, for a lot of us, certainly for me, back prior to 2008, a lot of it was a greater fool mentality, right? This stuff is just going to keep going up, and so I'll get in and I'll get out. But now you've matured from that. What are some of the financial strategies that you apply to running your current business? The, 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 what I do today, what we did with Total Control Financial and what I would do with every business going forward, there's a process. The, the first thing that we did, my, my partner and I sat down, we, we left our environment, we sat down in Atlanta, Georgia, and we asked ourselves, what is the mission of what we're doing? Let's, let's figure out what our mission is. It's like in the military, there's a mission. If there's no mission, nobody knows what to do and nobody's going to really have the fire and energy. So we had, we had this mission, we defined the mission, and then we said, what are the values? Who are we? At, at, a, at a soul level, who are we? And then from those two things, we built the team. And the first person on the team that we went after and found was a world-class coach. Because no matter how good we think we are, we're still going to miss our blind spots. And our coach came on. And a lot of times people say, well, I can't afford a coach. And and our and this is my, this is my my partner's fault. She's she said, I think this is the best thing we can do. And I even had this small pea brain thinking that we don't have any revenue yet, and yet we went out and said, okay, let's find the best coach we can possibly find in the world and bring this person on so we can get the constant feedback so we can see how we're swinging because we can't see it. We're too busy swinging. And so once we had that person, then we built the rest of the team, and we found people that were obsessed with the vision, our, our mission and, and what we were focusing on. And built the team to start executing. And then the last piece was really being accountable to whatever it is we were doing and measuring everything. So that loop of measuring and then fixing and having somebody else asking hard questions like the coach and, and people that are looking at the numbers, that loop is what keeps you out of trouble when you go off. You go off to grandma's house. You go off out of the, uh, off the sidelines and you're, you're out of bounds. You get the the feedback that hey you're off track you're not you're not staying focused and I that's where I got in a lot of trouble was I stopped listening and I stopped having people that I respected enough to pay attention to them saying you are way off track here. 
Yeah. So to that end, do you find now that you work best in partnership with people who you trust and, and respect? Yeah, that, that, that's everything is about that relationship. It's like that's why that's one of our our values. The relationship when people have the the values when they line up with the values, then we can trust and let go. And if we can't let go of things and trust people that are in integrity and focused and passionate, then we're 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 never going to be able to grow. And if we can't grow, we're basically on our way to death anyway. So, in order for me to continue expanding and growing. I have to have people that I absolutely trust that that I can walk away from things and I know that they're going to do the right thing and they're going to do things right and they're going to work they're going to work until it's done and so the team makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So I'm curious, you obviously you advise people on financial matters, on investments, you've done that yourself, you've done all types of different businesses and investments. You, we talked about this EQRP product that you offer through your company now. When it comes to starting a business, how do you look at it and what advice do you give people as to business ownership as part of an overall portfolio of building wealth? I, I, I think a, a business, there's there's two totally different heads. I was talking with this, uh, this, this gentleman this morning over coffee that there's two different heads. There's the business head and then there's the investor head. And and we, they're diff totally different skill sets. And building wealth through business is a fantastic opportunity to grow things because there's leverage and because you can envision things. It's it's a lot easier to go build a business and, and create some type of wealth in that space with your dreams versus saying, okay, how am I just going to own a thousand unit apartment complex? It's a totally different game. With, so I love the idea of business. I love the idea that you can have a business that you operate in your in your spare bedroom. I, I love that you can do these things now. And and if people aren't creating wealth, they're just not thinking big enough because we live in a time where everything is connected. I mean, like people are listening to us talk right now. Potentially, millions of people are listening to this, and anybody can go out there and share a message. They can share something, and there's so many people that are connected that there are people that are going to be interested in what we have to say. So. If we're not taking advantage of the times we're living in, I feel like we're just playing. We're running scared, and we're playing not to lose. Yeah. So I love the idea of of having business of some sort, any type, because it also helps you to grow. It it expands you, and that's really what we need to exist and thrive is some stimulus for growth all the time. Yeah, if it's if it's just the challenge alone of it, but of course, we want to make money at it. So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of times though you cringe when you see people have all of their wealth in a business especially a small business. Um, and I'm, sh I'm not a big fan of traditional uh, diversification, the way that people mm -hmm. have described it before and have, you know, indoctrinated us into thinking that if we spread it across two or three mutual funds, we are quote unquote diversified. You take it yeah. beyond that. But I got to imagine though, that that's where you help a lot of people is saying, all right, you got to distribute some of this wealth into other areas. Well, so one of the things that I love uh, is the the conversation around diversification because when we're first starting out, and, and when I say first starting out, I'm talking about we've got a few hundred thousand or a million or, or even a few million, or we've got a business that's making less than 10 million bucks. If we think it's smart to go and add on other things when we're still nurturing a toddler in business, we're asking for a, a death to happen because we've got to stay focused on things and let them grow to the point where they can actually thrive, where they're they're able to be let loose into the wild. And people get so wound up about being in different things that they start things and it's not it's not mature enough to let go of. So with Total Control Financial, I put all my eggs in this basket. I'm focusing 100% of my resources, my time, my network, everything in this space. And and for me, that that works. It also works for people that want to get other people to join their mission because when you've got someone that's obsessed, it's more interesting for people to support that and they're more likely to to go all in with you. If you're half committed, it's not really that interesting and it's a little scary to invest with someone or even to spend time working on their thing if they're only partially invested. So I think there's value in, in getting hyper obsessed and focused and being all in on whatever it is you're doing because you get all this alignment and conspiracy from the universe and other people that want to join that focus. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. But from a financial perspective though, Damien, the thing that's so hard for a small business owner is when do I stop, no, or not stop, when do I adjust putting everything back into building this business and when do I start taking some of that out and putting it into other assets? That's the thing that I struggle with sometimes. I, I think this is a, it's an, it's a big question. It's, I, 
I think from the beginning, it's p part of the education is understanding what else is out there that you can put things money into. That and it, part of this is expanding your depth as an investor. It's not just throwing money and hoping it works and it, it grows. It's about understanding the difference between capital gains and cap and cash flow and understanding that wealth is is probably more about having something continuously hit your bank account than having some giant number in a bank account. And and just so. Whether that's having something as simple as as a CD that you are that you've bought and it's outside of your business, I think that's a powerful step because you're taking a step. You're not just stuck staring at the possibility of something out there in the ether. You can do that at any point. I mean, I've got stuff. I I've got my my precious metals. I've got hard money loans. I've got these things that I've, I'm doing. They don't distract me from my business. They keep me with my investor mind running so that I'm constantly adding to my, my wealth and it's not just my business. And those things we can do any day. I mean, truly, it's easy. You go to the bank and you can have a CD. I'm not, I don't love CDs. I mean, give me a break, 1% if you're <laughs> lucky. But there, it is something and progress is better than perfection. And right now is the best time to make progress. It's not about something in the future. It's about today. Yeah, love that. Well said. Progress is better than perfection. All right, we'll start to shift a little bit here as we start to wind it down. Um, I always like to ask what you think the keys to success in life have been for you. Certainly, you've reinvented yourself a couple of times, certainly. How much has that been a key part to your success in life and in business, you think? Well, I think the, the reinvention really allowed me to switch from the focus on success to the focus on fulfillment. And there's there's something about fulfillment that is so much more powerful. We we want to be fulfilled, and people are they when, when we look out. I was I had a lot of success. I had money. I had cars. I had I had girls. I had the I had everything from a surface level, but I was I was hollow inside, and it was because I wasn't willing to be vulnerable, and I wasn't willing to be authentic and real and open. And once I shifted there, then the fulfillment started happening because I could show up, and people were actually interested in me, the real me, instead of the projected me and and that was the biggest shift in the the biggest reinvention was just showing up authentically and it's it's what people really want anyway because if you don't show up authentically then it's your projection that's probably going to end up meeting up with somebody else's projection and then you their the projections have a have a conversation or a relationship mm -hmm. and all that's great until somebody goes and shows up how they really are and then you have a big old mess yeah. so it's it's the transparency that really is the biggest shift and what allows for the deep fulfillment. Yeah, great, great insight. Uh, what do you love most about what you do today? <sighs> Henry, I love my team and I love seeing people set free that where they, they stop looking at at the markets. They, 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 they no longer care about what CNBC says. They don't care if there's a green arrow with the markets going up or a red arrow with the, the markets going down. They don't feel poor because the Dow has dropped. They don't give a crap. They're free to live. The anxiety is being taken out of their lives. And I watch my team being obsessed around this where we're creating better ways to, to share this message and, and more ways to empower people. So seeing people that are set free and can live without that anxiety is so freaking awesome. It's, it's like a gift every day that I get to unwrap. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so speaking of Total Control Financial, just summarize for me again the quick elevator pitch on the services that you offer your clients. So Total Control Financial is is a process, it's a tool of getting people off the Wall Street roller coaster and putting them in, in control with a checkbook for the rest of their lives financially so they can have a financial life by design and not one by default. They get to choose what they do, how they invest, and what their what their numbers and what their, their financial wealth is going to look like. It's not just based on somebody else's strategy on Wall Street that they can't control. It puts them in control of their money and their financial future. Fantastic. All right, let's talk about books. You mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's the, it was one of my favorite books early on. It really, for me, changed the way I thought about money, particularly what an asset is. That was a great book for me. Mm -hmm. uh, or is there another book that uh, comes to mind that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, there, there are a couple that I love, a couple of my mentors. So I mentioned uh, Grant Cardone and Obsessed. We have this obsession. He has a new book called Be Obsessed or Be Average. Love that one. And I love his his rule, his book, the 10X rule. And that's one of our values too, 10X. So th that focus, his his energy around just having a, a big life and, and focusing and, and doing something that matters. Love that stuff. I love Gary Keller's One Thing. 
that keeps you focused on whatever matters the most. And so that's that's a driver for everybody in my company and for me every single day. Those are those are the ones that that we touch on and we study religiously. Great recommendations on this that point you made about one thing. I struggle with that. I suspect you probably have as well. How how do you go about on a daily basis staying focused? Because we have this tendency to, like you said, chase the squirrel. I think you said for me, I call it the shiny object syndrome. How do you do it? We, my team has this culture of of accountability with our one thing. So every morning, there's actually an app we use called Marco Polo, and everybody gets on there and they say, "This is my one thing for the day." And and if it's not really narrow, if it's not something we can measure, then somebody's going to say, "Well, what is the actual outcome? What's the deliverable?" So we're always in that in that space of accountability, and it's very it's very transparent online. We use a tool called Smartsheet, and we can see our one thing. It's a very small list. It's not a task list of twenty things, but I can see my entire team's one thing and I know what they're working on and we interact so that there's transparency. Once it's visual and you're held accountable to it, it's really hard to get off track and somebody that's holding you accountable can constantly ask, is that the one thing? Are you working on your one thing? So keeping it open, being candid about it and transparent makes the one thing a lot more doable. Love that. Very powerful. Thanks for that tip. All right, and I'll have links to all of those recommendations on the show notes page for this episode, and you can find that at thehowofbusiness.com. Last couple of questions, final thought or parting piece of advice for our audience. Yeah, there's there's this this misnomer that that making a mistake is bad, and truly, a mistake is only a failure if it's not admitted. The universe gives you these opportunities to make mistakes and learn from them, and that's how we grow. That's the universe being on your side, and it's up to you to make the mistakes and continue growing. Fantastic. And where would you like our listeners to go to find out more about you and your business? I would love to have people come visit at totalcontrolfinancial.com forward slash Henry. And if you go there, I'm, I'm, I'd love to give you a copy of, of the book that, that I wrote on, on what we're doing and, and educate you and see if this is a good fit. It's on me. I'll ship a, a book out to you. And I'd, I'd love to have you learn more. Oh, fantastic. That's a fantastic offer. Thanks for that. Folks, take them up on that. I'll have a link to that in case, in case you didn't catch that on the show notes page at thehowabusiness.com. Thank you for that, Damien. You're welcome. Damien, this has been a fantastic time spent chatting. I've learned a lot. It's been engaging and um, just very interesting. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Henry, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity and everybody listening. Thanks for taking the time to invest in yourselves. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure and a lot of fun. This is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by levantebusinessgroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.